Three C's in a Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors. A look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Hello and welcome to Three C's in a Pod from Provision Advisors, where we give you insights and analysis on the day's hot topics and trends in the comms environment. This week, we're going to deviate from our COVID-19 coverage, talk a bit about what's taking place not just across our nation, but also among a growing portion of the globe. That is, erupting protests stemming from the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers. We're choosing to discuss specific segments of this news story because we feel we owe our listeners and ourselves as professionals a chance to push this conversation forward and attempt to be a willing part of the solution to what ails. Now, typically, we begin our show by looking back on various news items of the week. But John, I want to begin with you and ask specifically, as the father of three boys, How the conversations have transpired in your house as the video emerged of George Floyd on the ground with a knee upon his neck. Can you just take us through, and and I know that's very personal, um, but just what have been some of those conversations you've been having? Yeah, thanks, Bash. I I don't think there's anything I can say or really anyone can say to really capture the gravity of this. Um, You know, I, I know there are some people out there in social media and otherwise trying to minimize it. Uh, play the whataboutism game, uh, which I, I find really disrespectful. But I, I think everyone needs to take stock of how important this issue is in the here and the now and, and for the future of who we are. Ironically, I was telling uh, Chris yesterday that as the George Floyd scenario played out, um, I'll protect the names of the innocent and the guilty here. I had to adjudicate a um, a fight between my 14-year-old and my 16-year-old. And uh, long story short, that fight ended with one of them uttering a pretty hate-filled word at the other one. And um, and it was disappointing and frustrating and shocking. And we used that as, as you know, a way of talking about what is going on in this country writ large um, as, as a way of, of trying to, you know, love each other better, learn a lesson from this, uh, but then, you know, really just try to figure out the etymology of this. Like, where did this word, where did it get injected into uh, my son's vernacular? Um, and my other son, when he heard it uttered at him, was utterly broken by it. Um, and, and it was just a very emotional time. And we used it as a way of talking about how there still is hate out there, uh, you know, pervasive that, that exists in this country, is espoused by certain people and in certain areas of leadership in this country. And, and there really isn't a whole lot being done about it. Now, I'll end by saying that I now find it very weird how everyone is trying to one-up each other on their... I'm not racist or stand by, um, you know, your fellow men and women who have been dealing with this scourge forever. You know, and, and racism and, and this country's history are intertwined forever. And that's an ugly history. Um, but I, I look out there and people like Ben and Jerry's ice cream are, are trying to one up everyone else with like the provocative nature of their end white supremacism message. You know, not the social um, outrage and and uh, participation that's going to make me buy a pint of ice cream. Um, so I found that quizzical. I, I also found it equally quizzical as a Denver Broncos fan when 
the coach of the Denver Broncos, who was a, a white gentleman in his late sixties, Vic Fangio came out and said something so tone deaf yesterday. I, I couldn't even believe it. He said, Oh, I don't think there's racism at all in the NFL. Um, well, I, I think there's a gentleman named Colin Kaepernick who would, who would love to debate you on that subject. So you, you, you see different levels of ignorance. You see different levels of participation. I think the only thing that's important to me now is that it is now out there and we have to deal with it. And we have to deal with it in and around the conversations with our kids, which I tried to do this week and it was very difficult. But I'll throw it over to you guys. It's just a very disappointing time in our history. Chris, um, one thing, and, and I just want to take something that John said uh, and, and put it over to you before I, I ask you a, a more specific question. Um, when you see different organizations, different companies, different celebrities uh, put out these statements, do you feel it's it's more of a, they're pressured into the situation based on um, you know, social media, the social media atmosphere, um, or, or is it like, Hey, that's, that's just the right thing to do. Um, what, what's your take on that? I think it varies by celebrity. Um, I, I'm really torn on, uh, you know, the statements and the blackouts and, you know, whatever the, the, the tactics are, um, like where, where were you two weeks ago? Where were you three weeks ago? I mean, I, it's why I didn't want to do it for, for me personally. Like I want to, I'll talk about me and then sort of put it in the context of like communicating as a brand or as a, as an individual, I, I've largely sat quiet on, on this issue. I feel, um, I feel foolish now blacking out my social media accounts because I wasn't speaking out three weeks ago. I mean, this stuff was happening three weeks ago. I mean, how many young black men have been killed in 2020 alone? Right. I didn't speak out when the COVID-19 crisis disproportionately ravaged black people um, and other minorities. Like I, I didn't black out my social media. So I, I struggle with it personally out of hypocrisy. I mean, I, I try to do the best I can in terms of my own interpersonal relationship uh, relationships and how I raise my kids and how we conduct our business. Now that said, I, I'm not a celebrity and, and I'm not, I'm not really a person of interest to, to other people. So I, I think if you are, if you have, um, if that's your brand, whether it's your company or your personal celebrity brand and you are, someone or some organization that um, has routinely spoken out and has routinely been at the center of these types of discussions, then yeah, you, you probably should be out there and you probably should um, be trying to make uh, the situation better. My hope is, is that all these brands and all these celebrities, you know, when this dies down and it, it will die down, there will be something else that takes its uh, place in the shiny object world. I hope that they continue to put the same attention on it that, that they have this week. Is there any one, and I know we sort of talked about this yesterday and sharing a couple, highlighting a couple of social media posts that we saw out there. Do you have an expectation uh, from an organization? Like, like do, is there something that says, hey, look, I need to hear uh, from this team, from this organization, or is it, or does it just not move the needle for you at, at all? Either way, in terms of you divesting time and energy 
into the brand, into the product? For me, no. Um, and I don't know if it's just because I'm immune to it, um, given the work that we do, or <laughs> if I'm just like a heartless son of a bitch. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, but there was no one that I felt like I had to hear from or that, um, you know, if they hadn't spoken up yet that I was asking myself, where was that person? I will tell you the ones that kind of stuck out in my mind. Obviously, when President Barack Obama spoke up, um, that was noteworthy. Um, when Michael Jordan spoke up, I mean, just given the discussion recently in The Last Dance and how at other times he has not spoken up on these types of issues. And it's a little unfair because it's kind of apples and oranges in, in terms of popularity and also in terms of like the front and centerness, if that's a phrase, the front and centerness of, of this issue. But I, I was uh, interested in uh, in his comments. I was interested in President George W. Bush's comments. And then I, I laughed both out of humor and out of um, just disappointment at the way the major league sports have handled this. There are gajillions of dollars being made uh, on the backs of young black men and women. And I mean, they, ha they have a um, platform to make change and they largely have not decided to do that. I mean, there have been times and there have been people that have done better than others, but uh, so th that's what caught my attention. And, and it's a bit of a ramble. I apologize, but this week has kind of been a bit of a ramble um, as you look at all of the issues coming together, because it's not just racism, sadly. I mean, it's not just the George Floyd um, issue that we're dealing with. It's right. uh a president and how he chooses to communicate. It's a government and how they choose to communicate. It's the police force around the country. It's um, quite honestly a, a young generation that how they choose to express themselves. It's business. It's I mean, all of these things have come together. Um, and again, I mean, zooming out as a communicator, there, there's a lot of challenge in, in this as you look to kind of dissect and make smart decisions moving forward. I'll weigh in on that really quick. The, you know, what, what really caught my eye along the lines of what Chris was saying is, you know, the call outs of people. So our pod last week, we talked about this, the prevalence of, of, of just audience shaming. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the more provocative you can be, the, you know, the more viral your tweet is, or the more followership you might gain. And, and I noticed that as the, as the, uh, the momentum grew behind George Floyd-themed uh, protests or social media posts that there started to be this thing from athletes and celebrities like, hey, I, I see you. I see the people uh, staying silent. And and again, if I'm a brand manager, uh, you know, if I'm Ben and Jerry's, I, I just don't understand, you know, if, if number one, someone calling me out for my silence. Number two, then coming out and and basically making it our, you know, our platform. Um, I do think uh, racial equity and and just being good people to each other is is a is a responsibility of all human beings. But it, I don't know if if you number one should then be shaming people for not taking their social media platform and 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 wearing their heart on their sleeves some brands just like to 
like to keep quiet. They, they aren't involved in social justice issues. Is that right or wrong? I'm not really sure. I guess it depends on the brand and their history of, of um, you know, racial uh, um, understanding. But yeah, that, as, as Chris was talking about other people um, who were speaking out on it, I was really moved by Admiral Mullen's op-ed in The Atlantic, um, which was half of a half of a commentary on the George Floyd scenario and then half of a commentary on President Trump and, and his actions in and around the George Floyd protests in D.C. and his further politicizing of the military. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I read this morning that the president told the service chiefs that they were not to speak out on this whole thing. Um, and then General Goldfine of the Air Force came out and basically said, you know, I liked what he had to say about it. Pretty easy for him to go against the president's edict and that Goldfine's about to leave that post. So I, I, I wonder, you know, I'll use this as a segue into possibly the horizon portion of our discussion usually. You know, will there be this, this further advance of people being unafraid to upset, you know, the, you know, the rage tweeting president and, and speak their mind and, and use this horrible tragedy to, uh, to speak out and say, no, things aren't okay in this country. And it goes beyond George Floyd. But for now, you know, the George Floyd situation certainly needs to be addressed because there is a racism problem. And it isn't going away. It hasn't gone away. And it has to go away. I just think the leadership in the White House right now is the wrong group of people to lead this country out of it. As we move now into probably the fourth or fifth day uh, of, of growing protests, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know that anyone knows uh, exactly how long this is going to, uh, to continue among cities. Uh, Chris alluded to a bit of the government response. Uh, John, I know you've long been a proponent uh, of Governor Hogan's uh, response, his communication team's response uh, to issues here and around, uh, you know, the Beltway, uh, and specifically now to to the protection of some of the national monuments here in D.C. Can you expound a bit on on what you saw uh, from his team in terms of communicating uh, their involvement? Yeah. Um, so I tweeted out something yesterday. I, I follow Governor Hogan's team very closely. I used to be a member of Governor Hogan's team. And now I follow the, the new communication staff uh, very closely because I frankly have been very impressed by the way they handle themselves. So, you know, our, our conversation last week, still on the tip of my brain, um, I, about this, the prevalence of social media shaming of people. I was very interested in uh, how Mike Ritchie, the communicator for Governor Hogan, you know, responded to tweets from some pretty cynical individuals, basically, you know, popping off, you know, the same troll type of driven, you know, internet muscles. Hey, I'm going to sound off and accuse you of this without a whole lot of proof. And the essential tweet was directed at Governor Hogan and the team saying, oh, well, uh, Governor Hogan is deploying the National Guard to um, you know, to protect the national monuments. It looks like he's just, you know, lockstep with Trump in order to, um, you know, in order to use the military against American citizens, you know, shame on you, shame on you. 
and the measured response I thought was very good, basically saying, hey, you know, we, we believe in the protection of these national monuments. We're a local neighbor. You can disagree with our, uh, you can disagree with our, um, with our decision, or you can disagree with the, with the philosophy of protecting the monuments. But, you know, we, all we'd ask is that you get your facts right. Um, and end of story, you know, diffusion of the, um, of the issue. And, and it shows me two things that are, I think, valuable in communications. Number one, you have to listen to the feedback. Um, you know, we teach that at Dinfos. Listen to what the audience is telling you back. And when you listen to that, make sure that you have the avenue to fact check what is being said, evaluate that feedback, and then come back with something meaningful and empathetic. Um, you know, but also be mindful of the pitfalls of that strategy. We talked about a lot about it with uh, Admiral Brown at Chinfo when he first came in as the chief of information and was like going back and forth with people on Twitter, you know, in this first week. And, and we openly wondered, like, be careful, like, don't set a precedent that you won't be able to keep up with because you're about to have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of followers. Um, you know, the, the Hogan team does a very good job of, of, of looking at these trolls, looking at these like, really confrontational posts and and giving measured information back, which I think is very adult. And again, very unlike what you see 35 miles down the road in DC. John, when we had Mike on the show, um, probably just over a month ago, one of the things he mentioned was having your actions uh, in statements speaking with clarity. Uh, I do, I'm sorry, I don't have the exact quote, but um, I think one of the things that's missing from uh, specific parts of our leadership uh, is that clarity uh, amidst the storm uh, that is sweeping across the nation right now uh, and that many Americans are in need of, are in search of uh, clarity of, of position, clarity of how we're going to, to unify and move forward. Uh, so it remains my hope uh, that we will uh, eventually see that uh, though um, it's it's uh, a bit uh, dim uh, at, at this juncture. Uh, well, it should be based in actions. If I can end with that, that you know, I, I I played a role last night. I blacked out my Instagram feed and took a picture with my hand covering the lens, and it's a blacked out picture. And I threw it up for Blackout Tuesday. I think, and and this might not be a popular thing, and I'll end with this. I, I think that's total bullshit. And I really don't often like doing it you know, right. because it's sort of just an attention grabbing, just throwaway action. You know, if people really care about exacting change, then, then you better throw some actions behind it. And that was what Mike Ritchie was saying is that, you know, the, you know, the, the clarity of your communication, you know, is, is uh, delivered in your actions. Right. Um, right. Do you back it up? And, and I'm sorry, like I, I can, I can sit there and post all sorts of stupid shit on my social media pages, but if I'm not looking my kids in the eye and, and literally just pushing out, educating out, disciplining out the, the, the thought that it's okay in their mind to use hate speech against each other or against others, um, then, then I'm, then it's just a total failure. People need to turn around and take action. Uh, the social media stuff is nice, but it, it's not enough. Not, not by a long shot. And Chris made a great point earlier in talking about to, to what you're saying there, just if you weren't doing this, 
uh, a few weeks ago or, or in the past, uh, what exactly are you doing now? What sort of comprehension and understanding do you have uh, of the entire uh, atmosphere and situation that's taking place? Gentlemen, um, this discussion is a good one, and I know there is so much more for us to talk about. Um, we will get into a little bit more uh, specific to news coverage here with our next guest. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, folks, and when we come back, uh, we will uh, jump into that interview. Stay with us. You're listening to Three Season of Pod. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what-ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. We're back, and we want to continue our conversation by talking a bit with our next guest about the news coverage we've seen over the past few weeks. She's the current vice president of news for McClatchy and first woman to hold the position in the company's history. Longtime friend of the show, Kristen Roberts. Kristen, thank you for taking time to be with us today. You know, Bash, I'm so happy to be here, and it's so nice to hear the voices of three old friends. Yes, indeed. Thank you. So we're, we're just really glad to have you on the show, and it's, uh, it's good to be here today. So, uh, so this is great for us. Uh, Kristen, your resume and experience are quite extensive. Uh, you've been at the forefront of news gathering and reporting for quite some time, uh, whether political, Reuters, uh, you've covered presidential campaigns and more. I want to ask, in a day and age where we're seeing the fourth estate receiving some scorching criticism from amongst the highest levels of our leadership, what remains your true north for how you handle a newsroom? What a good question. You know, the, the true north is the mission, right? It is essential news that serves the public, essential news in the public interest. And so that's everything from investigative reporting to utility journalism to breaking news that helps people make decisions about the health and safety of their families. And so for me, as, as the leader of a news organization with 30 newsrooms around the entire country, I think every day about whether we are meeting that mission, how we're meeting it, and are there moments where we're not? And what do we have to do it to adjust there? The fact that people criticize us, um, I think about less than I do about whether we're meeting our mission, right? I mean, our job is to report the news. It is not to be the news. And that is a philosophy I have had my entire career. I will not become the story. And my people will not become the story either. And that's been, um, wow, I almost used the word fun. It's not so fun, but it's a, kind of a fun element of this, um, of this era that we are living through. You know, it's not just criticism um, or threats, frankly, that come from the top of our government, but we see it in the day-to-day -day coverage around uh, what's happening right now with the protests around America. The news media is much maligned today and the target today for attacks, both physical and verbal, from both the right and the left. And so it's a very, it's a different environment today than it was when I was coming up at Reuters or any of the other organizations that I was a reporter for. But it's important for every journalist to remember that you are not the story, right? You are the vehicle for the story. You are the one delivering information to your people. And so if you keep your mission in mind, it's extremely clarifying in those, in those moments of tension. 
what is it that would most just as a follow-up what is it that would most affect your decision making then as an editor as you you, you i understand that you have a a grasp of the criticism and where it's come coming from and that if the mission is, is leading you um but are there things that will affect your decision making as an editor based on the story that's in front of you the main mission is to is to convey the most accurate information we have in that moment right and it affects everything we do in this in this amazing environment right um you know this amazing environment where not only is the news cycle so much more rapid than it was 20 years ago but the ability of people to uh you know kind of shoot from the hip with uh, thoughtless commentary on a variety of social media platforms is in itself a challenge, right? And so when I think about the environment facing my reporters and my editors and my newsrooms, you know, I, I, I'm always saying, well, what is the most accurate version of this? How do we just make sure that we're focusing in on the facts here? How do we make sure that we're not writing a story that is a response to whatever someone might be saying to us, right? How do we just make sure that we keep in our minds our mission? Now, does it affect the decision-making that news leaders are making? In some ways, and so here's an example, right? We have seen over the course of the last few days uh, reporters being targeted both by the police and by pro not not protesters but violent looters right not the protesters and that's an extremely important distinction that we talk about constantly in my newsrooms so by the police reporters are targeted and by these looters the reporters have been targeted right how do we respond to that are we the story there well um, I try very hard for us to not be the story there. Where, we, where I allow us to become the story is where the institution of power is stopping us from our constitutionally protected duty to serve our public by sharing information. So if one of my reporters or, or videographers or photographers were detained and arrested, for example, they have not been, if they were, I would write a story about that and I would wage a very public campaign about that, but that hasn't happened. My reporters have had um, equipment stolen by looters. For example, just last night, one of my Kansas City star photographers had his camera equipment stolen and all of the images that he captured from the looting last night. That's not a story. That's a equipment problem for me, right? Um, the cameraman and the staff might talk about it on Twitter so long as they're not expressing opinions one way or the other, but simply sharing with the community the struggles that we're having in covering this thing for them. That's fine with me. But that's the way that it affects my decision making as a news leader, Bash. So, Kristen, John here. Um, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective, having been a reporter for so long, having been involved in the journalism industry for so long, where you see the causality of the current dynamic. Uh, you know, I've talked at length and the three of us have talked at length about, you know, the, the, the advent of fake news and the targeting of the media by the current Trump administration. But do you, do you think it started even earlier than that uh, with, um, 
you know, the, the forming of major corporations, the, the slow death of local newspapers, you know, now big corporations own news agencies, uh, or is it the advent of social media? Where, where, do, you, where do you pinpoint uh, the, the cause of, of the real challenge facing journalism today? It doesn't have a single cause, John, in my view. It doesn't have a single cause. It is the result of a combination of things, right? So news is being delivered in real time. And I grew up at Reuters where we invented real-time news because we were serving a financial market client. 24-7 cable news was the beginning of a changing dynamic, right? A changing dynamic where an increasing number of people were granted the ability to deliver whatever hot take popped into their head in that moment, right? And then Twitter democratized the ability to say stuff with no regard for accuracy to the benefit of virtually no one. Cable news followed by Twitter, followed by social, changed the dynamic. And people lost their discipline, right? People lost their ability to remember that it is the story that matters, not your opinion about it. And that all contributed to an environment where journalists were saying things they shouldn't say in some places, right? That's one piece of it. The other piece of it, the other piece of it, I think, is less connected to the fact that corporations own news organizations, right? Like I've been, I have been part of corporations that are, uh, that are run by, by, you know, public corporations that are run by boards. I've been part of news organizations that have been run by a billionaire. I've seen it all. Um, and, and in none of those situations is this kind of undercurrent narrative true that, that, that whatever executive is weighing in on the news. Like that's just not true. That doesn't happen in real life. I think what we what we do know to be true, though, is that the ability for critics to play as great a role in influencing the narrative as journalists have always played throughout the history of our industry, that changed the game fundamentally. Suddenly, it didn't matter that a politician was saying things that were absolutely untrue and charging, you know, charging the journalists with the crime for that. It didn't matter anymore because their platform was as large as or larger than the platform of CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post or Politico or any other news organization. And so the dynamics were fundamentally changed by the digital transformation of the news industry and the information industry as well. Do you know what I mean by that, John? Yeah, and I completely agree. And, and before Chris asks his question, I'll, I, I think I'll add that, I, yeah, I do believe that it's a, it's a mixture of all of these forces that maybe Donald Trump, his arrival in the White House and his view of, of real news almost became that final galvanizing factor to get us to where we are. Do you think there's any truth to that or would the same with the same problems that the journalism industry is seeing right now be the case if it were President Hillary Clinton right now? Wow. Um, 
I think this was a long time coming, coming and probably inevitable, no matter the man or woman in office, right? Um, the, the level of toxicity in our culture and in our society is extremely high right now. Um, and this president has very little regard for uh, the traditions that have governed rhetoric in America. And we see that that is true in every forum, right? In, in every possible way, that is true. We saw it on the campaign trail. Um, we saw it perhaps first when he came down the escalator and made comments about immigrants. We saw it, to me, most significantly in you know, August of 2015 when he went after John McCain. And it was in that moment where I said, this is the end because in America, you don't say things about war heroes. You don't say things about POWs. You don't say things about our veterans. And then his poll numbers went up and that's the moment when I realized the game had fundamentally changed. And so Donald Trump's attacks on the press are vile But he is voicing a sentiment that has been prevalent among many people for a long time. And so while I, at the beginning, was surprised that we had gotten to this place uh, with the president of a country that protects and values the freedoms of the press more than any other country in the world. Sure, I was surprised by that. In retrospect, we were probably always gonna to get to this place because of, of, the, of the depth of the division among us now. Kristen, let's, um, let's uh, kind of click in one level and talk specifically about whether it's the COVID crisis or, or whether the, the current civil unrest that's occurring around the country. We talk a lot on this podcast and in the, our day-to-day -day business about crisis communication and balancing the art of communicating in a crisis with the art of day-to-day -day and sustained communication. Does the same dichotomy exist in your world and how do you balance day-to-day -day with um, the need to apply resources and uh, energy and different levels of importance uh, dur during your crisis. C can you compare and contrast? I mean, absolutely it has an impact, right? I mean, from the very moment this pandemic hit America, uh, our decision, the decisions we had to make about the thing and the topics on which we had to make those decisions changed, right? Because you immediately get put into a breaking news and crisis environment, right? And so we begin to make decisions about uh, story selection and staff deployment. We make decisions about where we are going to shift our resources, you know, human resources, but also, um, you know, resources in the newsroom to focus in new ways on what our audience needs, new formats for stories that our audience needs at that moment. We're going to reassess the kinds 
we're going to reassess the medium we choose to emphasize based on where we are in that story cycle. And so from, so, you know, from that very moment that the pandemic hit first California and Washington state, which was the first markets where we felt it at McClatchy at the Sacramento Bee and all of our papers in, in Washington, you know, we, we turned immediately to a long-term breaking news environment. And what that means is everything from uh, establishing a shift rotation that allows us to go 24 seven um, in a way that small local newsrooms do not always do anymore. It means um, choosing formats like video for breaking news. It means business decision. It means, you know, straight away lowering the paywall and giving free and full access to coronavirus coverage, prioritize breaking news and utility journalism over long form and investigative. That's not to say long form and investigative aren't also going on. They are going on behind the scenes because we need to figure out why some people are able to get instant tests for coronavirus while we've got lines of, of, of healthcare first responders who are not yet, right? How decisions are being made around the distribution of, of, uh, of respirators, for example, right? Like these are the things that our investigative teams need to be working on in a breaking news environment. But from a decision maker perspective, immediately you need to turn to what is your crisis coverage plan? And that's going to be demonstrably different from your day to day. How much do you guys exercise that plan? I mean, how, how much does, um, are you in the development of your team? Are you dealing with day-to-day -day versus kind of planning for, um, you know, either coming out of the current crisis or planning for what may be the, the next crisis? Um, I mean, my guess is certainly you didn't see, uh, like the rest of us, 70-something days into the COVID crisis, sort of immediately going into uh, to what we're dealing with now, or, or maybe you did. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of prepare your team for what you just described? Um, I'm going to use some words that you guys are extremely familiar with, right? I engage in contingency planning all the time, right? Um, I remember walking into Chinfo saying, what's your contingency plan for this? What's your contingency plan for that? That's what I do as a news leader, right? I'm, I'm looking out on the horizon constantly. What is my next big problem, right? So June 1 was the start of hurricane season. I'm sitting down here in Miami. Trust you me, my Florida newsrooms as well as my Carolina's newsrooms are absolutely prepared. We know exactly what equipment expired last year. We've already replaced it. We know exactly where our people need to be in that environment. We've already tested to make sure that our systems will continue to run and that our generators have been refreshed, if you will, in, in, in advance of this. So there's constantly contingency planning going on here. You know, when the coronavirus hit Italy and spread with such a force that it began to surprise the financial markets, I began to wonder what is it going to look like when it comes into one of our airports? And within just a few weeks, we had that exact scenario in Sacramento. And it spread from there so quickly. But because we as a news leadership team, which includes you know, the senior leaders of my newsrooms around the country, because we had been talking about the potential for this story and how this story was going to be different from a live shoot or a hurricane, a wildfire, a natural disaster, et cetera, 
we were ready to execute on those plans, right? Um, we were ready to go to a work from home status very quickly and efficiently. All of our staff had, had the mobile devices they needed to do their jobs, for example. And where we had staff such, such as in our print publication center that, that did not have mobile devices because they don't need them, we physically picked up their desktops and moved them from the offices to their homes, right? We, we made sure that we were ready to pay for the boost they would need to their internet service at home to allow them to lay out our pages. So we do constantly look over the horizon um, because if, if, we, if we are constantly in this state of triage where you're just responding to the story that's breaking presently, you will, you will just fall flat on your face as a news leader and never be able to deliver the kind of journalism that truly adds some value to the lives of your readers and viewers. Kristen, you mentioned uh, in your, your answer back there, you mentioned Chinfo. If you could sort of take a step back in time and talk about your expectations, how you benefited from the relationships you had, regardless of, of, of the service um, and, and how it allowed you to better do your job. Um, to the extent that you are in your seat now and watching perhaps from a distance, how some of this media coverage that, that comes out of that building now um, is a bit more narrow uh, from, that's, from my opinion. Um, could you just give us a little bit of your take on what you you know what your expectation was back then, and how you've seen that uh, that atmosphere change. That is a deep and L long. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that it is. It's a deep and long and complicated question. Um, and and I'm gonna be. Um, I'm gonna throw some like not fully not fully baked thoughts out here on the table because I've never been asked this question. I I learned so much about journalism, about um, leadership from coming, by coming up through both financial reporting at Reuters, but then this incredibly formative experience as a military affairs correspondent based at the Pentagon for Reuters. And it's such a dramatically different environment reporting at the Pentagon versus any other institution, right? Versus any other beat I ever had. It required some stuff that all beats require. It required an ability to form professional relationships with the people you were reporting on, which is always really difficult to do because they have to be able to kind of first test you out, stress test your ideas, take a look at how you're writing, what are the verbs you're using in your stories, how many adjectives are there coloring the picture in a way that it should not be colored. Um, and so there's that initial period where you're both just testing each other out. Like, are you gonna tell me things I need to know? Um, and on your side, I would imagine, is she going to, deal with that information responsibly. Can I trust her with this information, right? Um, and that 
process at the Pentagon is so interesting because there are so many stakeholders in the Pentagon, right? It is not just, you know, your quote unquote senior defense official, right? It is guys like you who were sitting in Chinfo and dealing with the day-to-day -day stuff, local stories that were bubbling up somewhere to the national story, right? It was dealing with, with the uh, joint staff at various places. It was de dealing with the joint chiefs. It was dealing with SecDef's office for sure, right? But there were so many stakeholders involved there that my ability to um, understand their motivation in talking to me, understand my role in, in being a responsible human, um, as well as a responsible journalist, was 100% improved through that experience of reporting at the Pentagon, right? Um, and understanding as I was traveling, first with Secretary Rumsfeld and then with Secretary Gates, into extremely controlled environments in war zones, right? Like I wasn't out there freelancing and running around and putting myself in dangerous positions. I was in the bubble with SACDEF. But understanding that the people I was coming in contact with um, were going to be impacted personally by the stories I wrote was kind of a mind-blowing and life-changing and um, uh, you know, framework altering experience for me. And it made me understand um, something that I never understood as a financial reporter. And it was that the, the words that I write down and publish have an impact on human beings and their lives and their families. And it led me to value deeply the process of relationship forming and to prioritize for myself um, the taking of responsibility for my words, right? And I've carried those lessons with me into management, into talking with younger reporters, into talking with veteran reporters. It is, it is the thing that leads me to do stuff that my staff makes fun of me for. You know, I'm constantly telling them, before you send me that story, you go through and remove every dang adjective. I don't want one adjective in that story. And they go through and they delete their darn adjectives, right? And if I find extra ones, I delete them too. It was a formative experience for me in, in terms of relationship building. And I think probably your listeners can tell that now. Like I, I, I'm, you can tell by my voice that I'm smiling at you guys because I love seeing your faces because we had good times together and bad times, but we also had some good times together. And I think mm -hmm. you know, being a reporter at the Pentagon was, was just one of, one, one of the best experiences. One last thing. Donald Rumsfeld, you might, you might be like, I don't care what any of your listeners think about Donald Rumsfeld. He, he said some things that were noteworthy, let's say, right? And one of the things he would always say when we went to other countries, and I think this is really important in this moment with a president who says terrible things about us, no matter where he is. When Donald Rumsfeld would go to other countries and have press conferences or talk to other leaders in a public way, he would make a note of pointing at the Pentagon press corps and saying, these guys are smart and they're to be valued. And we didn't need him to say that about us, but I think it was a reflection of a country's values, values um, that are stressed, under strain today, if you know what I mean. Definitely, definitely. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's Kristen Roberts, Vice President of News at McClatchy. We wanna thank you for spending some time with us today on Three C's. It was my absolute pleasure, guys.
Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Listen, thank you so very much, folks. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with us. You're listening to Three C's in a Pod. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. And we are back. Uh, typically, this is where we look out on the horizon at what we see for the next week. Uh, gentlemen, again, this has been a, a, a sort of special uh, conversation we're having about what's currently uh, going on here uh, across the nation as we look at uh, the growing protests uh, that have taken place uh, over the past week. Let me ask you, you know, let's, we're, we're, we want to move forward. I, there's a hope, I, I think, uh, between the, the three of us and, and those that we work with and uh, and live with that uh, we have to move forward uh, as a nation, as a community. Um, what are, what is the next step? I know that's sort of a just just a, a blank blanket question there. Um, what you know, Chris, I'll, I'll I'll ask you. What do you expect to happen um, if not tomorrow? Um, you know, as we move into the summer, we we're, we're in the we're in the first week of June here. Um, what I suspect is going to be a long summer. There's still a, a growing um, health pandemic that we're dealing with. Uh, what do you expect to take place? Uh, what, what are you hoping for? Um, let me do what I expect and then uh, I'll finish up with what I, I hope uh, will happen. Um, what I expect is, is th this will continue for um, uh, another uh, few days to, you know, may maybe a, a week or two, um, it'll eventually kind of burn itself out uh, as a lot of these types of, um, I guess, the kinetics of these movements tend to burn out. Um, I, I hope it burns out peacefully uh, and is not crushed um, or, you know, there's some tragedy that, that causes it to end. I hope that people um, feel like their voices were heard and then they move on to other things. I mean, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think we probably still have several um, exciting news days left ahead of us and knowing this president, uh, he'll figure a way to make it more about him. And, you know, that, that will add uh, to, to all of this. What I hope will happen is that people will align their, um, their communication and their actions in a way that seeks to make things better, um, right? So we've talked about this before, whether it's your household or whether it's your company or what, whatever, like do what you can to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll use me as an example. In my house, we're, we're just going to try to do better. Uh, we're going to do better at how this affects us and to the degree that we interact with other people, we'll, we'll try to do better. Some things pretty proud of the way we act, some things I'd like to fix. Um, you know, are there ways for provision advisors to do better? Um, we'll, we'll look at that and, and see where, um, you know, where we can do better. Uh, and then, you know, where we participate in sort of a larger discussion. I mean, it, it, sadly, I mean, we didn't get here overnight. And this isn't, a, I really don't mean this as a, as a cop out, um, but, but we didn't get here overnight. And I think it's, un, right. uh, it's unrealistic to say that this will be solved by the end of the summer. 
uh, or by election day, or even if uh, we elect a different president than uh, uh, Donald Trump. Um, I, I do think that we'll continue to see blips uh, of this type of, um, I don't know if it'll be race driven or if it'll be some other issue that drives people to the streets, but people's anger and frustration at society and at the White House, I think will continue to manifest itself up through the election and maybe even after. So we'll, we'll continue to see these, these types of issues. Um, but I mean, at some point, a enough people need, will hopefully align their personal communication and actions, their business communication and actions and their organizational communication and actions. And we'll begin to make, uh, some change. And, uh, you know, right now we're not being very nuanced in how we look at the problem, but there are lots of different elements to this problem. And um, I, I think if we can get to a point where those nuances and those different elements um, begin to be addressed in a real way, then maybe we'll make some progress forward um, or we won't. And we'll find ourselves uh, right back here. Uh, John, how about, how about you? Um you have any any expectations on what the the next few days and weeks are going to look like? Uh, what is it you're hoping for? I'll use that word again. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping for I'm really hoping for uh, healing, and I hope that the advent of summer um, and and relaxing of COVID restrictions helps us. You know, part of me wants to play amateur sociologist and say that a lot of this is bubbling out of the frustration of this country um, with massive unemployment, with people being stuck in their homes around it, just their families for two and a half, almost three months now that, that these all played a role, so to speak, in, in, in the outcry and in the anger. Um, Not that, not that we needed any of this to, to, to yield an appropriate level of outcry and anger. Um, what, what the Minneapolis police did to George Floyd uh, should have sparked incredible outrage and anger despite COVID, despite no sports, despite any of this crap. Um, so I, I, I hope that as things get relaxed and things return to normal, that, um, that people start having perspective. But I'm, but I'm afraid that that perspective and that return to normalcy means, oh, well, that was just a blip on the radar. We can keep going back to what we were doing. And, and I think what we were doing was wrong. You know, what, what this country has is status quo is how dudes' knees end up on the back of a guy's neck, suffocating him to death. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful for a return to normalcy. What, I've, what I'm fearful of and what I expect to happen is, like Chris said, that the pre-election rhetoric keeps going until November, that there is, uh, you know, a, a, just a real polarization more than exists right now, but a further polarization as we get closer to this point where re-electing Donald Trump is either a commentary on being okay with what happened to George Floyd or not being okay. And I know that's an incredibly simplified version of trying to put people in opposite corners but that's where I think this is going. And, and I don't see sports really coming back and helping people to heal or get distracted. Um, you know, the Major League Baseball players and Major League Baseball owners 
This is a perfect microcosm of the divide that exists between people, particularly in and around the George Floyd protests and issue is you've got the Ian Snells out there of the Tampa Bay Rays saying, I'm not taking a reduced paycheck. I'm going to get mine. And he said it in such a way that was almost a little too black for the owners. Like, oh, I'm going to get mine. And I completely agree with them. Like you signed a contract, you're, you should get paid for what you do. Um, and so, you know, the, I almost feel like the baseball debate as to whether to have a season and how many games to play in the season is, is just a little glimpse into where these divides take place between rich as shit, white guys who own baseball teams and predominantly minorities who play the baseball games for these rich owners. Um, it highlights the divide. And part of me kind of wishes that baseball doesn't come back so that people can just concentrate on stuff that's important. Um, I, I never thought I'd hear myself say that around sports, but that's what I believe right now. So that, that's where I'm at. Bash, before you, you, before no, you uh, wrap us up, um, I, I think that, you know, the, the business of America uh, since its founding has been business. Um, the majority of the decisions in this country are based on um, economic drivers. The health and welfare of this country is largely measured by economic indicators. Um, how we treat other people is largely motivated by, not, not for everybody, but, but largely is motivated by um, economics where they fall out in the economic pe pecking order, their value to whatever organization they're a part of, their value to society, not necessarily as a human being, but as, um, as a member of the labor and workforce. And um, I think until that changes, at least parts of that change, I, I think it, it does become about, I'm gonna get mine. Right, whether you're a baseball player or whether you're a, you know, somebody in poverty or whether you're a, a millionaire or a billionaire, like I mean, that that tends to be people's reaction. And um, I, I think until you until that changes at a national level, I mean, the indifference from our elected officials for generations. I mean, you know, beyond sound bites and beyond, um, you, you know, faked. Uh, anger or frustration in the moment. I mean, we have done really nothing. I mean, we've passed civil rights laws. It's largely been passed, and then you know we sort of get back to business as usual. And I think that if the to, just to kind of wrap this up, I think if the country continues with business as usual, um, I, I just I don't think you can go back to business as usual as a african-american man with raising two daughters right like I, I mean that that to me is the that's the hard part is like it i probably will go back to business as usual whether intentionally or unintentionally because i'll just kind of fall back into the same patterns and businesses will fall back in the same patterns but i don't think african-americans can can go back to business can, can keep going back to business as usual right i mean i i think it becomes harder and harder each time and i'll, I'll sort of turn it over to you to finish this out thanks chris um i i would say this um for myself for my family for the friends uh my, my black friends uh the thing is chris is that it's never been business as usual 
um, usual for us, depending on where you've grown up and the communities that you've been in, the boardrooms that you've been in, uh, it's quite unusual uh, uh, to be to be frank. And that is what leads to the eruption of emotion, uh, the uh, the standing tears in your eyes, tears of frustration, tears of anger, shouting to anyone who will listen, you know, please get your collective knees off of my neck. Uh, I'm laughing to keep from crying here. Um, look, we're, we're certainly witnessing a movement uh, that I think cannot be denied. Uh, I will always hope and pray for the safety and welfare of, of fellow humans. Uh, as we see the, the images that are, are being shown across our, our, our televisions and phones and, and iPads and such. Um, yeah, I, you know, there is no going back to something. It is but to move forward to something better. Uh, and that has always been the wish. Um, and I, I, I'd really like a piece of that. Uh, Chris, you and I spoke. Uh, you know, we're, we're, provision advisors is made up of three men who have families. Uh, we're fathers, um, husbands, partners. We um, we care about the children that we're that we're raising, and I am certain that you know, Chris, you you had asked me. What are we leaving them? And the conversations that you know, that I've had with with my children are concerning to me um, because you can see them having trouble trying to dissect all of of what's happening. Like you can only hide but so much. And then there's some stuff that I'm just, I'm not trying to hide. Like they need to know where this is going. And and, and I think in listening to my oldest and hearing the desire and promise for what she wants to do and what she wants to get involved in says to me, well, okay, you know what, rather than, than wallow in, in despair or think that there's just no way to get, uh, to get ourselves to, to, to some sunlight at the end of the tunnel. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that. Uh, I, I said this yesterday, and I'll, I'll, I'll get off the soapbox here. Um, in looking at the peaceful protests, uh, you know, staying away from whether it's fringe left or fringe right and, and people out just to conduct violence, but in listening to what I know is genuine, genuine hurt, genuine anger, genuine emotion, uh, that's people fighting because they won't give up. That's people fighting because they do want something better and they know it's out there. Um, so to that, I say, America, the beautiful, they've made a decision. Um, and anyone opposed, well, shame on you. Folks, I want to thank you for listening. We appreciate you joining in on this special conversation that we've had here today. Uh, as always, if you're looking for more information as your business or organization, navigates the current communication environment, please feel free to reach out to us at provisionadvisors.net. And in the meantime, America, be safe. Thank you for listening to Three C's in a Pod. Have a great week.